Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring the word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until they came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Good morning. How's everyone doing? So this morning we're going to do sort of another Christmas story. And last week we were in the passage right before this in First Matthew. Albert went through that, and that had the shepherds in it, and this one has the wise men in It's kind of interesting, right, because when we think of the wise men in manger scenes, you see the shepherds and the wise men there, and in reality, in the scripture, they're not anywhere near each other, and not even in terms of the timeline. There's probably a couple years apart in what's going on here. So today I'd like to get in the scripture a little bit, and the title of the message is The Magi Come to Worship, the Wise Men, and we're going to talk about who these magi, who these wise men are, and what their role is, and study about them a little bit in scripture, in the Old Testament. And so when Matthew is writing his gospel, there is no New Testament at all, really, to speak of, right? So when he is referring to things, he's referring to what we would call the Jewish scriptures or the Old Testament, because that's the only thing there was. So there was no Old Testament. There was just scripture. So that's where we're going to go with this a little bit. And talks about that there's three wise men in common folklore or in the photos, you know, or in the cards, and you see these wise men. But in reality, we don't know how many there were. There might have been two. There might have been eight. There's no number in the scripture Yusuf just read for us. And so we're going to see what the Bible really teaches about these wise men and what we can learn about it in reality, like what it actually means to worship. And so these guys came hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to worship this new king. And Matthew is laying out in his gospel that Jesus is the king that has been prophesied and that the kingdom is not only amongst us, but it will be in the future also. So that's what Matthew's unique part of the gospel is. They're all a little bit different. And so his is is setting up Jesus as king, and we see that in this scripture. And so before we get going, let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this a bit. Oh, also, just a heads up, we're going to stay in the scripture, but I didn't get any slides out to the slides team, so we'll be a little bit in Daniel 2 also. So if you want to just flip open to that at some point in Daniel 2, so when we get to it, you know, you don't have to bounce around waiting to catch up with me and stuff. Father God, we just thank you for this awesome day, this beautiful weather. We thank you for this season where we can celebrate you sending us your son, that we can come and worship your son, Lord, that he came here to redeem us, 
and to transform us, Lord. And so we just praise you and thank you for that. And just bless this time of worship now and let us hear what your words have to say and how that applies to our lives, how we worship, Father God. And we ask this in your name. Amen. In this account, in verse 1, it says, Now that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That's verse 1. And so the timing of this is that Herod is the king of the Jews, and he dies in 4 B.C. So Jesus is no longer a baby, right? Because we see in the previous passage before this that he's in a manger, and now he's in a house. And so some time's elapsed, and he's referred to not as a baby, but as a child. And so it's estimated that he is somewhere between one and two years old. And honestly, I don't know why it is estimated he's born 6 BC, because it's before Christ. And you know, you'd think it would be zero, but it's a right in that time frame. So Herod dies in 4 BC, and so this is the time frame we're looking at for the part where in verse 16, Herod's going to decide to kill all the baby boys under the age of two in this town of Bethlehem. And there's not three wise men. We don't know that number for sure, but the wise men are also known as the Magi. And the Magi comes from Magos, and in English it's corrupted into meaning magician. But in Greek at that time, the Magi were a priestly class, and they were the power behind the throne, not only in Babylonia, but with the Persian Empire to the east of that. And so they were powerful, powerful people. They held a lot of status in society. And this is where we're going to get into Daniel chapter 2 a little bit so we can identify who they are in the Old Testament to give us perspective. Because Matthew is going to presuppose we know who the Magi are. And the people he is speaking to are going to know who the Magi are, but we're not going to 2,000 years later, so we need to know a little bit more about who they are and what their role is in all of this. Daniel is written almost 600 years, or it happened 600 years before the timeline we're talking about now. It's during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and that's in the early 600s, the like late 500s, right in that period. Nebuchadnezzar had a 12 or 13-year reign. Daniel is in that era there. And in the first verse, we see that in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And so here we have the wise men, who are being called the magicians here, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. And they all have different skill sets in the world of the occult or, you know, divination and interpreting dreams and all of that. So the magicians, the wise men, the magi, so to speak, they perform magic. They combine their knowledge of astronomy and astrology. Back then, it was considered just like one thing, sort of the science of it all. They just combined the two to interpret events that were going to happen. And the tenets of their religion, Zoroastrianism, they were the priests of that religion. And that religion was a monotheistic religion, and it had a priestly class, and this is the priestly class. At this time, you know, the Jews have been exiled into Babylonia. 
And so there's a huge population of Jews in Babylonia, the diaspora, and so they have an impact on society at large. And so one of the impacts they have is on this priestly class of the Magi, and then also their religion has an impact in the sense it's monotheistic and all of that, except it's corrupted for their own means. And even after the exile, a good portion of those Jews stayed in Babylonia. They married in with non-Jews, and portions and remnants of that religion stayed all the way down into when this is being written in that area. So they are the textual scribes, and they are the temple authorities, so to speak, and they're the ones in charge of the religious rituals, much like the Jewish priestly class, right? So they have the same sorts of responsibilities. But one of the things they did is they brought the next king to the throne. They were the power brokers behind that happening. So when a king died or was usurped or something happened, they were the ones responsible for bringing a new king in. And so they're particularly fascinated by what Daniel has to say in terms of prophesying and what happens in Micah 5.2 when it prophesies about a king coming to the town of Bethlehem. So, you know, they're all about kings. And so the seed is being planted here in Daniel into the Magi to understand Jewish scriptures a bit and to understand the idea of their prophecy. And so when the star shows up, that triggers something in them. And we'll get further into that as we go along. So Daniel is summoned to identify and interpret the dream. So in verse 36, when he is summoned, he starts telling Nebuchadnezzar about what his dream is about, right? Because these four groups of people, the Chaldeans and the magicians, the magi and the sorcerers and all, they not only interpret the dream, they couldn't sort out, like, they couldn't access the dream, right? And so... Nebuchadnezzar knows there's this guy, Daniel. He summons him to the court, and he is able to interpret the dream. And so at this time, right, this is the Babylonian Empire at their peak, but he prophesies about other empires also. So one, this one's happening now, the Babylonian Empire, but two, there's the Medes and Persians, and that empire is about to take off and supplant the Babylonian Empire, and they are to the east. And so, you know, names like Darius and Cyrus in the Bible, those are great kings of that empire that these magi are the priestly class for, for their religion and for being responsible for elevating those men up to the position of king. And so then it moves on in verse 39, it's the Medes and Persian, but also the Grecian Empire. He's prophesying about the Grecian Empire coming to prominence, but then going away. And then in 40 to 43, he's talking about the Roman Empire. And so these are the great four empires of the known world to the Western world, essentially, or in the Middle East through the Orient, like to Persia. So we don't know anything about China at this point. So these are the empires that we've studied in sort of Western civilization. And all of these have risen and all of them have collapsed. What's interesting about the first four empires here is that the Magi had a strong role in all of it because even with the Romans, no matter how powerful they were, they could never totally subdue the Persians and the Medes in the east. So they were always worried about them, and they had major battles with them, and those battles happened to be along the Mediterranean coast, on the Syrian coast, and in Palestine on the coast. And so, you know, in B.C. 80 and... BC 40, they had big battles there. So they always had an eye on them, and they were worried about them, and they knew about the Magi. And the Magi are a very powerful group of people, and their power transcends through even the Roman Empire. But all of these empires collapse. And so in verse 44, Daniel starts talking about God's kingdom that will never be destroyed. 
and all the others fall except this fifth kingdom. It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and Daniel gives the interpretation, and in verse 48, because of his interpretation of this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed. You see, like in verse 48 in that section there, that Daniel is given a huge promotion, and so now he's in charge of all of these other groups, the Magi, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and those groups like that. He's above them because his interpretive ability is so powerful. And, you know, dreams are interesting in Scripture because, you know, a lot of times now we think about interpreting dreams and what they mean, and it's sort of new agey or hocus-pocus stuff. But there's a long tradition of that in Scripture, going all the way back to Joseph and with Jacob and here in this instance. And we'll see the Magi later in this passage. So as we move on, this godly kingdom, this kingdom that's going to come to pass is going to be the kingdom of Jesus Christ, right? And so what the wise men are doing here is they are coming to witness this long-anticipated king that has been prophesied by Daniel in this stretch. So they want to see this king for themselves. And what's great about this is it's a picture of the Gentiles who will eventually come and bow before the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So these aren't the Jewish priests. These aren't the Jewish scribes. These are Gentile priests and scribes from a pagan religion from far away who want to come and worship this newborn king. And so it's just kind of awesome. It's a picture of everything being opened up to Jews and to Gentiles. And so that's what this represents here. And so in verse 2, back in Matthew, it says, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so we notice here that there's a total present participle, right? They want to know where this king is. They're looking all over for him. And so that's why they're here, and they're excited about it. But they're not there out of curiosity, but they're there kind of out of adoration. And they're there to worship this new king. And so them being these kingmakers themselves, these powerful men from the east rolling into town, that must have been quite a spectacle. So John MacArthur writes about them when they arrived in Jerusalem, Herod knew what was going on. They were kingmakers, and when they wandered around in town saying, where is this new king of the Jews? Herod got panicky, totally panicky, right? And he's like stressing out. It's like, I'm the king of the Jews. Who's this other king of the Jews? What's going on here? When suddenly these Persian kingmakers appeared in Jerusalem, no doubt traveling in full force with all their oriental pomp, and they used to wear these big conical hats with points on the top and big deals clear down to the bottom of their chin. And they rode Persian steeds, not camels, right? And so on the Christmas cards and everything, we see them on camels. But they're actually coming in on either Arabian horses or Persian steeds. And they did not come alone, right? Because a group like this is going to travel with a big posse. So there's probably a cavalry with them of some sort of small military group. And so when they came charging into the city of Jerusalem and Herod peeked out of this little palace window, he must have flipped out. Because as John MacArthur says, these are powerful men, and to make it worse, his army was out of the country on a mission. And the Bible says Herod was troubled. I guess he was pretty troubled because Herod, in verse 3, says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So he's troubled because his title is king of the Jews. Now, a little background on King Herod is he was very crafty. He was very cruel as a ruler. But he was a great builder. He built a hippodrome for the city of Jerusalem. He built the amphitheater. He's rebuilding the temple and calling it King Herod's temple. He's a great orator, a decisive leader, a skilled diplomat, and he was cruel and bloodthirsty, right? He was a total tyrant, and a lot of us know about that, but a total tyrant. Wicked man who wanted control at all costs, 
He alone will be king of the Jews, and he's going to stop at nothing. He will send out his merchants to do some grisly business for him. He's already done a lot of that, but we're going to see what he does in the future. And so he is such a wicked tyrant that he has killed one of his wives, all the sons from that wife, so they can't usurp any power from him, things like that. He is just a dastardly kind of demonic guy, really. I mean, he's super powerful, has all sorts of skills, but he is a very wicked man. And so all Jerusalem hearing about this feared, right? Because they know all about Herod, and they know Herod's not going to take this sitting down, right? There's this new king. Who is he? The king is my job, right? I'm king of the Jews. Caesar Augustus has appointed me to this position. And so there's going to be blood in the streets is what people in Jerusalem are probably thinking. And this is a stressful situation for everybody because it's going to bring out the worst in Herod. And so in verse 4, we see that Herod assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He gathers all the scribes and all the priests together, and so the priests are the ones who are the temple authority. The scribes are the ones who interpret the scripture, and how we see them here is like the ones who have the temple authority are Sadducees, the ones who are the scribes are Pharisees, and they comprise most of the sort of the religious government, the Sanhedrin, but they're also experts in scripture at this point, and so it's well known the prophecy in Micah 5.2, which we just read basically in 6, Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so this is scripture that these wise men are familiar with. And so that's why we're finding Matthew referencing that in this passage. And so the scribes and the priests know the Bible chapter and verse inside out. They know everything about it. They know it before it was chapter and verse, you know, because that's a later invention. So they, they have a scroll, and they don't even need to look at the scroll. You know, they have the whole thing memorized. And so this is going to stress Herod out even more. But they know from where this baby is going to be born, the king is going to be born, and it's from tiny little Bethlehem, right? And that's where this ruler is going to come forth and shepherd God's people, and it was prophesied so long ago. And it's interesting that this little town is only five miles from Jerusalem, the center of all Jewish spirituality and worship, and that's where the temple is and all of that. And so in verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So, you know, he's getting really interested on what happened here. And so he wants to know about the star when it appeared so he can figure out how old this child is to go back in time, right? And so the wise men, I mean, they don't know really what Herod's all about necessarily. So they tell him, you know, the star appeared a couple years ago, essentially. And, you know, we've been traveling for a while or you know, however it worked out. And so their travel time is probably like 50, 60 days, a couple of months. But still, this star appears and it triggers in their collective memory as religious leaders in their own right, the story in Micah here and in Daniel prophesying the coming of Jesus. And so this Christmas story is kind of a grisly story, really, right? This isn't like a happy story in the sense of what happens down the road in verse 16 when Herod decrees that all boys under the age of two are to be killed in Bethlehem. And so that's the outcome of all of this. But at this point, Herod is still posing himself as somebody who's really interested 
who this new king is, who this child is, uh, in theory that he can, in verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. Right? So this is how he's posing it, that he wants to go and worship also. But we're going to see that that's not the case at all. So he tells them, you find him, you let me know. I want to come and worship along with you guys. This is going to be awesome. But in reality here, it's the religious crowd who's going to go there, and they're going to wreak all sorts of havoc. They're going to kill all these little boys. And really, you know, you see in the Bible, it's like, don't get on the wrong side of a religious crowd, because if that happens, you know, it's, it's just not going to be a good outcome. And so the religious leaders here are not worshiping this baby Jesus. The religious leaders later on in the Gospels are the ones who crucified Jesus. Just, you know, it's not a good thing to get on the wrong side of the religious crowd sometimes. And so verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, so this is some sort of like supernatural revelation, you know, because it can't just be a regular star up in the sky a million light years away because all of earth is under it, and how's that star going to point to one little place in Bethlehem which they don't even know about? So there's some sort of supernatural revelation going on here. We don't know necessarily what that means, but these politically powerful priests and kingmakers, they're familiar with the supernatural, right? They delve into predicting the future. They do divination. They're all about supernatural, and so something speaks to them, so they follow this star. And the word star is actually derived from a Greek word called aster, for asteroid, but I don't know if it's an asteroid or what, but they saw something in the east, they must have had this divine revelation, you know, some sort of special revelation to recognize that this star is going to take them to the Christ. No one can ever come to Jesus through general revelation, you know, so it's got to be special revelation of this star, right? I mean, we just don't come to Jesus. We don't have our lives transformed by Jesus and by God and the Holy Spirit just because we have, like, some general idea of things. God's got to really work in us and create some sort of special revelation that is directly from him for that sort of transformation, for that desire to want to seek God out. And so these guys, these magi, they want to seek God out. And so they're going to go on a long journey. And whatever's pointing to this spot has to be some sort of supernatural intervention, which for them, that's totally cool. That's something they can relate to in terms of what their religion is. And so in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy because that means now they found the Christ. And in special revelation from Jesus is where we find our great treasures. It's where we find our great gifts. It's where we find our great transformations in our life, you know, to be something different than we have been. And in this day, it is by his word and the Holy Spirit that our eyes are like being opened to the power of Jesus to transform us from darkness to light. And so that's what these wise men are recognizing. And really, this story has a big history with something called Epiphany. And I don't know if some of you know what Epiphany is, that holiday. Christmas is on December 25th. Epiphany is on January 6th. And Christmas, until they changed the calendars around, was always on January 6th. So they were one and the same. But Epiphany is centered around this story and what it means. And that is coming out of the darkness into the light and being revealed something, the light of Jesus that can transform life. So in the Eastern Church, Epiphany, it's a big day and it's a massive holiday and it's really more like their Christmas. Epiphany was celebrated a hundred years before Christmas was ever celebrated. So it's an older holiday in terms of what that term is. 
And you know, these are just days that they've picked. So January 6th on the old calendar was the same as December 25th on our calendar. It was basically right at the beginning of the winter solstice kind of thing. You know, that's how Christmas was chosen, right? Because of all the festivals of lights and what goes on in pagan cultures around the winter solstice. The early church fathers decided, oh, you know, why don't we use this time for our holiday of worshiping Jesus and the coming of Jesus? So that's actually how it's centered there. We're not quite sure what day of the month or anything that Jesus was actually born. So you can look that up. I'm not making that up. So now that we're hitting verse 11, we're hitting a portion of this scripture where we see what it is to be in supreme adoration of God, to worship God in just this awesome way. And so, and verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So here, the journey of the wise man has really reached its climax, right? Here's the fulfillment of their long journey, and they're coming into a house, not a manger, right? So when I was saying there's no manger here, you know, those Christmas cards or Christmas specials on TV, that they're not at a manger, they're in the house. And also in here, when it says, and going into the house, they saw the child. So the passage prior to this that Albert taught out of, Jesus is a baby. Now he's a child, which means he's gone past that. So we don't know exactly how old he is. We're saying he's up to two years old, probably between one and two. But they were so in awe that they just fell to the ground and worshipped him. They recognized that there was something special about this child. And in our lives, as we worship, there really can be no other response, right? But what they're doing here, they've traveled all this distance. This is what they've come for. This isn't a time for questions and answers. It's, you know, about it's like, hey, what did you really mean in Micah? Or what did you really mean in Daniel, right? This is all about adoring this child, worshiping this child. This is a time of holiness. And so they're worshiping. I forgot the Greek word for worship, but it essentially means to kiss forward, lean in and kiss forward, and to show love and affection. And so this is what these guys are doing, right? They're leaning in forward, and they're showing love and affection, and really it should be our response, right? What they're doing, reverential awe, they're loving supremely, they're showing majesty, and then they're opening their treasures. And all worshipers are givers. When we come to worship, we're here to give. We don't come empty-handed. And they give praise and honor that belongs to him alone, this Christ. And worshipers look away from themselves, right? When we come to worship, we're not looking at ourselves, and we're looking away from the world, and we're looking exclusively to Jesus, and that's who we are giving homage to, and that's who these wise men are giving homage to. And so the gifts, what are these three gifts? I mean, the early church fathers found these gifts to be kind of prophetic, right? So gold is one of them. And gold is a gift fitting for a king. And so that's where the early church fathers find this prophetic, right? So king, you bring gold to a king, and that's what you do. And so that's an awesome gift to be giving, and it's a great way to be worshiping. It's the right to rule being a king, and that's Matthew's entire basis for his gospel and the storyline he's setting here. And he's the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, and he's the prince of princes. This is what we recognize when we worship Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, right? Amen to that one. 
Next gift is frankincense, and that's used in the worship of God. So in the temple, they use frankincense to make incense, and that was an important part of the worship service, having the incense going. I and mean, we don't really do that in our churches here in America, or really too much in Europe. But in the Middle East and further to the East, that was a big tradition, using incense to kind of invite the Spirit of God into the worship time. And in this, because it's used in the worship of God, there's this hint in their gift of an acknowledgement that this child is God in human flesh. This child would perform the works that only God can perform, and that he possesses the attributes that belong only to God. He is named the names that belong to God alone. And, you know, there's a lot of them. We don't need to go through them, but those are unique to Jesus and to God and to the Holy Spirit. And then the third gift is myrrh. And what's interesting, you know, that's used to embalm dead bodies, and this could be a representation of his coming sacrifice on the cross, because he is going to be embalmed after that. This child is like no other child there's been. He was born to die in order that the rest of us can be born to live. And he's coming into this world on a mission of redemption and salvation that will necessitate that he will have to lay down his life so that we might all have life. And then in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I think here we really see something of how the wise men were changed. Having worshipped the Christ, they came in one way, and then they left another. They came as one group of people, and they left as another group of people, taking a whole different direction in their lives. And that's what's to occur in our lives when we gather here for worship together. When we come in one state of being when we come, and we are to leave here in an elevated state. You know, we come in and we're stressed and we're worried and our lives are down and we all have struggles and we come here to be encouraged. And worshiping God is something we come just in, just who we are to worship. And when worship is done with reverence, with awe of Jesus, then we are able to leave here in an elevated state. And so what's awesome is we all come here on Sundays to gather collectively to worship God together and to have some sort of transcendent experience that we can take out these doors that make our lives different, that make us more Christ-like in our lives. And so that's why we come here. We don't just come here, you know, to hang out. Well, I mean, we do, but we're all seeking something, and we're at different places in our journey with Jesus, with God, and some of us are at the very beginning trying to figure out what it's going to look like to have a relationship with God. Others of us have relationships with God, but we're stuck in a rut. Others have a relationship with God, and, you know, they have a halo above their head. And God's just constantly polishing it and shining it. And we're all in a different place, but we need to recognize wherever we are on that journey, we're here together, we're worshiping together, we're loving God together. And worshiping is interesting, right? Because what we worship is what we become. And so when we come here, we're trying to become more Christ-like because we're worshiping Christ. But if we worship the world, we're going to become more worldly. That's what's going to define us. If we worship money, we're going to become materialistic. That's what's going to define us. If we worship Christ, we become more Christ-like. Worshippers always become the object of what they worship. And you can tell that just hanging out with people what's important to them, you know? And it's like a materialistic person, it's pretty easy what's important in their life. A worldly person, it's easy to tell what's in their life. And I'm not saying that I'm not any of those things. I mean, we all have our struggles and all of that. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. But you can tell what's important to somebody by how they spend their time and what it is they're worshiping. 
And so because worshipers become like the object of the worship, and so it is, I mean, like produces like, right? And the worship of Christ produces Christ worship. And so as we're here today, do we desire to be more like the Savior? I'm sure we do, because that's why we're here. We wouldn't be here this morning if it wasn't in the depth of our hearts to be following Jesus or wanting to know what this Jesus is all about, to have our lives transformed, to how God sees us and has plans for us, rather than how the world sees us or values us, right? Because God has an entire idea for who we are and what we look like to God that we don't necessarily see. We allow other people to define that often for us, you know, and that determines what our self-esteem is and what our hang-ups are a lot of times. And God wants us to put that aside because he's created us in his image and he wants us to recognize that and make that transition from here to there, right? Not to be valued in certain ways by the world, but to be valued by what God sees you as and has created you to be. And so this is one of the reasons we come to worship, that we bow down to God, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, to ask for that transformation in our lives so that we can be more like the image he created us in. And so at the center of this transformation is our worship of Jesus. And it's not soul-crushing or pride-crushing, but energizing, invigorating, and full of hope and transformation. So the wise men came one way and left by another, right? And I pray that through God's special revelation, that we too can leave by another way, and that we will in our hearts and souls bow down and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, just like these wise men did. And so on that note, we're going to close up in prayer and then move into our time of communion, which we do every Sunday. And communion is important to us here at this church. God only commanded us really to do two things, and one is to be baptized, the other is to take communion and to worship God in that manner. And so we do this every week, and we do it humbly, and we do it in a manner of worship that is bringing glory to God. So if we are in a space in our lives right now where we have unreconciled relationships with people, with friends, with wives, with boyfriends, with girlfriends, whatever, workmates, that sort of thing, really take this time to reflect on what our role is in that and how God can transform us into being in a place of worshiping properly. I mean, worshiping in a way that's reverential and honoring of God. And so that's what this time is all about. And Justin and Jane are going to come up and lead us in worship while we do this. If you want prayer, I'll be right over here to pray for you if you like. I'd love to pray for you, anything at all. And then if you want to know more about Jesus and what it means to worship Jesus, and what it means to have a life that's transformed by Jesus and what these wise men were seeking when they went there. Love to talk to you about that too. So let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for this scripture that you've given us, Lord. It's your special revelation to us that we can divine the meanings of these words that transform our lives, Lord. And so we just thank you for bringing us Jesus and the diversity of sort of the Christmas stories here. There's the one where the shepherds come to the manger and they honor the baby Jesus. And there's this one, Lord, where the wise men come from a long distance who are pagans, Lord, who are Gentiles, and they come and worship. And the religious order, the religious elite, those who should know who this Jesus is, turn their back on him, Lord. And so one of your great gifts is that this hope of redemption and transformation and salvation is open to us all, Lord, and that if we have hearts where we've turned our back, that you soften them, Lord, and that you can put a shining star in our path, Lord, to lead you to you. So just thank you for this time we can come together and worship you, and we ask this in your name. Amen.